Today's podcast guest knows a bit about diversity. He grew up in Manchester and was a Liverpool supporter. David is the author of two books, Leadership Matters and Leading Well. David provides insight on why too many leaders think leadership is binary. Hear David's take on the saying, don't sweat the small stuff, you might be surprised. Also find out why David is wearing a t-shirt emblazoned with hashtag feminist. David is one of the most entertaining podcast guests we have had on the show. You're going to enjoy this episode with David Pick. David, welcome along to the podcast. Great Thanks, to have man. you here. Hi, Ray. How are you going? I'm doing very I'm well. Very excited. Very well. My first podcast in New Zealand. Really? It is. Yeah. Well, now you're truly global if, you, if you've had one <laughs> in New Zealand. I've gone global. I'm you very have. excited. You're there. You are next level now. Thank you. Nice. Uh, let us ask you a few fast facts. Let our audience know you a little bit more. Yeah, cool. Are you a uh, breakfast or dinner guy? I am absolutely 100% a breakfast person. I right. get up at 3 o'clock every morning. 3 o'clock? I, every single morning, yeah. Is that, is that morning or is that still night? I'm pretty um, sure I, class, I class it as morning, but my wife and kids class it as night. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So I'm definitely a breakfast person. Wow, I'm a 5 a.m. guy and I thought I was doing quite uh, well. Oh, you see, because I'm, um, I'm a very keen marathon runner. I yes. have a goal in life, which is to run a th- sub-three-hour marathon. And I haven't got there How yet. How are we tracking? Not very PB well. PB so far? 3.15. Oh, that's, yeah. that's, that's 33 that's marathons in. That's quality. With one, another marathon coming up in four weeks. Right. And, and is, it, is the time going down or is it... Oh, it's going up. Yeah, yeah I mean, you know, to be fair, you're probably on the wrong side of youth at the moment, you know, as far as oh, marathon running know, goes. No, 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 but what they say is that you get better at marathons the older you get. I am not evidence of that. Right. I, I am declining. All those extra miles in the legs are just not showing the dividends. I think I'm getting up too early in the morning. Yeah, exactly. Not, not, not enough recovery yeah, time. That's it. That's that it. Could be, could be it. Where's the next marathon? The Australian Marathon. Right. Yeah. It's right. the Canberra Marathon. So fast and flat? Uh, very Canberra? fast and very flat. Yeah. And um, I've done it. This is my seventh Canberra Marathon. And I've done it when it was 30 degrees. And I've done it when it was minus one. That's Canberra for you. It is. It is. Well, good luck. Thank you. I uh, hope you crush that uh, PB. I won't. Uh, oh, look what you've, um, you know, running a marathon uh, full stop is a great achievement. Yeah. Uh, holiday, would we find you bungee jumping or on the pool lounger? Uh, you would find me on the pool lounger, um, but I have a little holiday routine, um, which is this. I always, wherever I'm going, I always find a park run. And park run is a free 5K run every Saturday morning. It starts at 7 o'clock, wherever you are in the world. Awesome. It starts at that that time zone 7 a.m. Right. And I'll always go and do a park run wherever I am if I'm there on a Saturday. Yep. yep. So sun lounger with a little bit of exercise. Okay. Where's the most interesting park run you've attended? Um, in Kuala Lumpur. Right. Yeah. It was interesting because um, uh, I was running very, very fast. I took a corner too hard, um, too steep, and it was wet. And I landed on my head and I ended up in hospital um, being stitched. I had seven stitches in my head. And I was on stage as a keynote speaker the next day with, I looked like Mr. Bump. Do you remember yes. Mr. Bump from the <laughs> well, Roger Hargreaves yes, series? So I yes. had a big bandage across my head and it looked like I'd been in a bar fight. Yes. And I hadn't. I'd been park running. Right. Well, it's a dangerous Exactly. Running. <laughs> you be running is very dangerous. Uh, very contact, contact sport. Uh, if we found you reading a book, would it be an electronic version or a real book? It'd be a real book. Okay. And uh, we have a couple of uh, copies of your book yeah. uh, here. Um, so available in real book, it's also available in, in Kindle. It is. It's, it's available in both. It's about leadership change and it's about that 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 desire that managers and leaders have to make change in their life. And I think that's because that's that's why it's it sold pretty well. Not that I'm here to spruit my book, but if you did want a good book on management and leadership, there's two. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, if I was to uh, turn around and, and face the camera, well, I'll, I'll get you to read it out, eh, David? What, is it, what does it say on the, 
Ah, business leaders' lives changed for good. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, so, I was, I was you just, know, we're, I was, we're aligned here. We are. In actual fact, I was saying um, just before we started, wasn't I, that um, I can't help but think when I read about you and your organization and you read about me and my organization, we, we're going to end, we're going to violently agree we on, are. on we this are. podcast. Right. It's going to be the most boring podcast you've ever done. It is. It is. <laughs> Look, I'll just, I'll just try to be really argumentative for, uh, for argumentative sake. Do it. Really Leadership doesn't matter. Doesn't. Don't lead well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> just just lead a run, run a market, we'll be fine. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. Uh, that's agile, isn't it? No, no, let's not go there. That's it. Um, animals, cats or dogs? Um, okay, so that's a very apt question. Um, I've got two daughters, Olive and Pearl, and we are being absolute, myself and my wife are being absolutely badgered at the moment. No, not to get a badger, but to get a dog. <laughs> yes. We are we are at breaking point. We're at the end Break. of our tether. No, we've broken. Good. We have promised them a dog. One of those little fluffy voodle, oodle, oh, doodle oh, things. Yeah. We've even right. named the damn thing. Right. So I would say dog person. Okay. Well done. Well done. If you're watching a movie, would it be a thriller or a comedy? It would be a comedy. Mm-hmm. Yes. Got a favourite? Uh, my favourite comedy, yes, I have actually. My favourite comedy is a Guy Ritchie movie, Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels. Yes. Absolutely English yeah. comedy, yeah. the yeah. kind of subtle yes. weaving of different yes. storylines all yeah. coming together at the end. Um, very clichéd for someone from Manchester, right. but yeah, that's my favourite movie. Okay. And this fast fact question, not one that I ask everyone, but sure. I thought given someone that was raised in England, currently lives in Australia yeah. and, you know, a bit of a global personality. Yeah. Favourite sport, football or Aussie rules? Oh, I mean, what is what's Aussie rules? Uh, okay, can, <laughs> you I just, can I tell you, you something? About, you just lost the Australian uh, audience, right? I there. have got a view on Aussie rules. It can be incredibly controversial, but hey, let's get controversial here. I think Aussie rules is the only sport in the world where you're rewarded for mediocrity. <laughs> okay, you can win an Aussie rules game by missing. So you can kick at the main goal and you can miss by five or ten metres and you get a point and that can win the game. That is reward for mediocrity. I absolutely love football and I'm a huge Liverpool fan. There's a lot we need to explore here. (laughs) So firstly, wouldn't football be way more interesting if there was actually some scoring happening at regular Uh, intervals? So maybe should we widen the the goals or put some... Ryan, this illustrates your fundamental misunderstanding of football. Okay, football is not about scoring goals. Right. It's about creating the opportunity to score goals and the conversion of the opportunity. Right. The beauty of football is in the conversion of the opportunity. Yes. And the mediocrity of football <laughs> is in this. Not very often does the opportunity get converted. Oh, well, that's because the defence is so good. I can watch a nil-nil game of football and it can be the most beautiful, poetic game because it is the beauty of attack and the beauty of defence neutralising each other. <laughs> Excellent. I'm glad you're happy with a nil all draw. Um, I'm not so much. We'll move on. But uh, maybe early exposure to resilience. So growing up in Manchester, supporting Liverpool. I assume yeah. that was good resilience they were developing oh, yeah, earlier. No, well, actually, yeah, yeah. So, so uh, I mean, resilience is a huge topic in management and leadership. And um, I think that one way of increasing resilience is to return to some of those things. And you're, you're exactly right. Like, I mean, that's a, a slightly flippant comment, but I, I did grow up in a relatively rough part of Manchester, um, middle to low socioeconomic. Sure. Um, I went to a normal, um, everyday, normal state school, a comprehensive school, as we, we call them over there. Um, I did grow up in a Manchester City part, supporting part of, um, of Manchester, and I was a Liverpool supporter from a very young age. Um, but I was also a slightly... Um, I guess relatively academic 
person growing up in an area that yes. potentially wasn't. Sure. Um, and I was the first person from my school to go to Cambridge University wow. from a from a state school. Yes. I mean, you hear about Cambridge being public school and all of that kind of stuff. Um, that wasn't my experience. Um, by the way, I definitely don't think I was brought up on Struggle Street and, you know, I, I did, I, there was no kind of drug and alcohol in my... Yeah. Th those are the people where, who I really admire for resilience. But I have had my own battles, if you like, and I would class my battles as having a very small B. But I think you lay down some of those pathways to resilience from your youth. So I think that's absolutely true. I mean, I definitely wasn't beaten up by the Manchester City supporters and I could give as good as I got. But, sure. but I think definitely from your, from your youth, there are areas of resilience that you can take into adulthood and into the workplace. I think mm. that's absolutely true. Mm. And what do you think made or helped you go on that path from, uh, I suspect, you know, you were the first person from your school yeah. to go to Cambridge. There was probably uh, maybe at your school not a natural progression to go yeah. from school to university. True. What what gave you the desire to take that path? Actually, do you know, um, I, I've analysed that a, a fair bit, and I'll, t I'll tell you exactly what it was, because I think quite often um, you can look at yourself and you can say, oh, you know, I was smart or I did that. or And I sometimes think the difference between going down the right path or the wrong path, and again, I'm very, very reticent to use right and wrong there, because there's no such thing as right and wrong, but going down one path as opposed to another. Um, one of the things that I put a lot of store in, and I've done this through my career as well, is role models. People that, um, people that build you up and um, positively stroke you and emphasize the positives. And uh, there were certainly a couple of teachers that I had right. back at my, Bredbury Comprehensive School, my state school in the you know the, the the part of South Manchester that I lived, who saw some things in me and encouraged them. Right. And I think there's a lesson in that for today's leaders. I think I think too few leaders today look at their staff, their workforce, their employees, and pick out the real positives. There's an awful lot of negativity in management and leadership, and I think that's the wrong way to approach things. So when I look back, um, back in back to when I was 11, 12, 13, and I started to um, get into things more academic, sure. that was absolutely encouraged by two very specific teachers, um, Mrs. Smolker, if you were listening to this, or Mr. Worley, if you're listening to this. And if you're not, I'll find it and send yeah. it to you. So a shout out, Th those teachers kind of grabbed hold of me and they recognised something in me that I don't think I even recognised in myself. And I think there's a lesson in that for managers and leaders in the workplace. Absolutely. I was having a conversation with a uh, client a couple of days ago, and we we're really talking about where, as leaders and managers, you get the most value from mm. the investment of your time and resource in an organisation. Yeah. And they have some areas of the business that are under challenge, and they're very focused on that uh, challenge piece. And I said, uh, what are you doing for your stars in your organisation? Yeah. And you know, research would suggest, and personal experience would suggest, yeah. actually, if you can invest in, in some, some of your people that are doing well and really want to grow and develop, yeah. the return to the business is, is massive. Now, that's not to say that you discard yeah. people that maybe have some challenge or that you could, could do some yeah. work with, but I think all too often in organisations we focus on the squeaky wheel and totally we cool. leave the, the positive uh, and, you know, people uh, to their own devices because yeah. they're not causing us any drama and they're doing, doing totally well. Agree. So actually yeah. investing in those people is great. I mean, look, interestingly, I think, I think we oh, totally agree. I think um, what we're talking about here is actually emotional intelligence, isn't it? This is the ability of managers and leaders to to pick their focus and to adjust their focus depending on what's required. And too many managers and leaders 
work on kind of carrot and stick. I've either got a carrot or a yes. stick, carrot or stick. And th this is an inability for managers and leaders to adjust their style from those two polarized points. And the problem with that is the workforce is typically not polarized. There's, there's a gray area, there's a spectrum, and people fall all over the spectrum and they, they bring their whole self to work and sometimes they're up and sometimes they're down. And too many managers and leaders are very binary, yes. and binary doesn't work. No, no. So, David, you're the author of two books? Yeah, two, and I'm yep. working on a third one Another at the moment. Third. Yeah. Okay. So, Leading Well yeah. is, is one of them, and... Leadership Matters. Thank you, Leadership Matters, yeah. the, the second. Which came first? So, Leadership Matters came first, and uh, then Leading Well. And so, uh, if the genesis of the books, um, and again, um, I'm not definitely not here to, to spruik the books, but if you did want a good book on leadership. Yeah. Um, and look, we're, we're interested because we know the books came from a research base yeah, and they did. talked That's to some very point. influential people. Yeah, we did. So, so, so help us learn. So we're the, we're the Institute of Managers and Leaders Australia New Zealand. So we merged with the New Zealand Institute of Management at the beginning of last year. Um, so we're now the Trans-Tasman Leadership Institute. We're not-for-profit and we believe in the principles of sound management and leadership, as do you. Um, and what we wanted to do is if you believe in something and if you have a vision statement which is creating better managers and leaders for a better society that's our vision statement um, that word creating is really important yes because what it means is you actually have to do something you don't just believe in it everyone believes in good management and leadership but so few people do anything about it Correct. again I'm preaching to the converted here. we're an institute that believes in creating better managers and leaders so you better define what you mean by it so we did some research amongst our membership of about 10,000 members and about 1100 corporate members so we did some research and what came back from the research was that leadership is a, new, a unique combination of what we've called inspiration and perspiration. Okay? I like it. So it's doing and thinking. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, interestingly, what, what we found was when you go into your typical bookshop, and I see you've got a bookshelf down here, the vast majority of books on leadership are into that inspiration. It's the Tony Robbins view, it's NLP, it's it's rah-rah, it's let's motivate everyone, okay? Sure. It's the but, leader on the stage at the yeah. front of the room and oh, they're so charismatic yeah. and they're gonna, you it's know, that part yeah. of leadership. Yep. And I'm really inspired yeah. for eight minutes. So so you've got, you've got inspiration and perspiration, yes. okay? And everyone's going inspiration and I think don't get me wrong, right? The second book is about about inspiration, and we'll talk about that in a second. But actually, the tough stuff, what we call the tough stuff of leadership, is what we call the perspiration. It's the hard work. So there are some things, and this will hopefully ring true to your listeners, right? There are some things that leaders absolutely have to do, and if you don't do them, you can't lead. So this isn't about getting up on stage, it isn't about being extrovert, this is about what do you actually have to do. I'll give you a classic example because I wrote the chapter, so, um, and it's the chapter that started the book because right. what, what do I think is the very first thing that a leader has to do? Set strategy. A leader has to be able to set strategy for their workplace, their team, their club and society. So I'll give you an example. Um, in my spare time, I'm, I'm the president of the PNC, the Parents and Citizens Association of my local primary school. Right. It's, it's, a, it's a public school. Mm -hmm. They've got a PNC, and I sit on that PNC, and I'm the president. I got elected as a president. I have to set the strategy of that PNC. I have to. I mean, at the very, I have to organise the Mother's Day stall. I have to organise the Father's Day stall. I don't do the organising. Sure. But I have to say, we have a strategy. 
and our strategy is this and the result of the strategy will be this. A leader has to be able to set strategy. In actual fact, um, the book, the interesting part about the book and the reason it became a bestseller was I wrote a, a, a section of the chapter on setting strategy about why I believe that that phrase um, culture eat strategy for breakfast why I believe that phrase is absolutely incorrect. I do not agree with the view that culture eats strategy for breakfast. And that's what the book became quite controversial because of that. So I believe that strategy comes first. You have to set your strategy. That's, the, that's what the leader does with the leadership team, with the board, whatever. And then from that, you define your culture. You can't have a culture that's out of sync with the strategy. Correct. So if your strategy is sales or marketing and you, you want to push a product or something like that, you need a culture that reflects that. You can't have a research kind of culture if you're a sales organization because your strategy won't work. If your strategy doesn't work, no one's got a job. <laughs> so this isn't about, I think too many people think leadership is this kind of woolly, let's all be nice and it's become this kind of thing that has become all intertwined with culture and a leader needs to be, this isn't about that. My institute is about how do we get the best for business? And the best for business, by the way, is treating your staff well and all of that kind of stuff, but it's a strategic decision. Mm -hmm. So the first book was about the seven skills that you need to be a leader. What do you actually have to do? And one of them was setting strategy. The next one was defining culture um, and then making decisions. And so there's, there's seven of those skills. And then, so that was a really hard book to write. And then on the back of that, we always knew we'd write the second book, which is about the attributes that you need, not the skills, but the attributes. Okay. And so give us a definition of the difference between skills and attributes. Well, skill is, skill is hard work. And you, so, so a skill is something that you actually do. You have to be able to set strategy. Whereas an attribute is something that you are, that you have to be. Okay, now both mm -hmm. of them, um, both of these things can be learned. Yes. Okay, so if you're not good at motivating people, you can learn how to do that. If you're not good at setting strategy, you can learn how to do that. But too many leaders focus on the inspirational side of things and they think it's good enough to go along and say, I'm a great leader, I'm an extrovert, I can stand on stage and get people all rah, 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 which is all well and good. But if you can't set strategy, if you don't know how to go through the process of setting strategy and consulting and doing research and presenting that back and taking feedback and that, that strategy cycle, if you don't know how to do that, you're going to fail as a leader. Absolutely. And Dave, with uh, our experience of culture and building high-performing teams, yeah. is that yes, a uh, leader at the top of the tree is really helpful because they do help set strategy and they help yeah. define culture and, and those kind of things. But actually people experience culture in the organizations yeah. with the people they work with every single day. Absolutely. So if I'm in an organization of a thousand people, I probably spend very little time with the CEO unless I'm at the exec table. Yeah. But if you want to get your strategy executed, you need a whole lot of other leaders in your business and that what we call the middle layer, you know, changing yeah. culture from the middle out that actually have leadership skills and can build and develop people at that space. Yeah, I totally agree. The middle layer, as, as, as you refer to it, Ryan, is I think is absolutely critical. So if you're in an organization of a thousand people and you're managing a department of a hundred, you have to have a strategy for that department. Yes. And that strategy of, for that, for your team, has to link into the major strategy. So you need to understand that strategy and you, want, you need to understand the culture that comes down, but then you have to define your own strategy that fits into that. So I spent um, a, a very defining part of my career at Hewlett Packard. Yes. 
So I was in the HR department at Hewlett Packard, and and uh, these were in the days when the HP Way was the cultural um, was the cultural outlook of Hewlett Packard, and it was one of the best places to work, and it had management by walking around, and all of that kind of stuff that came from um, the original founders Hewlett and Packard, and. Um, so a lot of what I learned was from that organisation and what I saw were different business units and different departments doing different things but they all worked towards the main strategy. Everyone had sight of what the organisation was doing and everybody um, remembers Hewlett Packard because of the cultural implementation of the strategy but everybody thinks it was a culture that led the, the business and it absolutely wasn't. I was there on the inside, I was right. the one of the heads of HR in the UK and what that HP way was was a strategic interpretation and what it was aimed at was getting the culture to fit in with the strategy and uh, the leadership would talk about strategy and vision and mission the whole time and then they'd interpret that and implement a culture that was best placed to deliver that strategy. Right. Right. And um, so this idea from Peter Drucker that culture eats strategy for breakfast, I think what he was getting at, if by the way he ever said it, because there's a bit of a dispute about whether he ever said it, what he was saying was you have to get your culture right, otherwise your culture can destroy your strategy. But he wasn't saying that culture was the yeah. most important thing. No. The strategy is the most important thing. Yeah. Uh, my interpretation yeah. would be there of equal importance. Yeah, right. Because I think you can have a fantastic strategy, but if you don't have a culture that can deliver on the totally strategy, agree. then it won't won't happen. Yeah. And equally, if you've got very poor strategy, you can have the best culture in the world, but you'll never achieve yeah. anything because no one knows where they're headed yeah. or what they're trying to achieve. So, but there are very I few. Well, have, I, I totally agree. But I think I think the thing is right for me, and I, I love these debates. I, I, I think that strategy always needs to be paramount and here's why right if you're an organization that makes cars okay and your culture isn't right you're not going to change your strategy and start making boats <laughs> you're always going to make cars so you have to get your strategy right but you never you're not changing your strategy yeah. so you can change Absolutely. your culture and of course you can you, you can alter and adjust your strategy but you only do that for business reasons you don't sure. do that for cultural no. reasons correct so um, it's, a, it's a beautiful philosophical debate, but I think too many leaders lose sight of the fact that their role is to set the strategy. Yes. And I think what there is no debate around, this is not a chicken or egg kind of yeah. conversation. It's like, you've got to have the strategy first. Your strategy's got to be appropriate for your then market, get your for your segments, right. and then you go, yeah. what culture do we need to help us deliver on the totally strategy? Right. Yeah, Which is why in the book, first. setting strategy was first and then defining culture. And you're absolutely right. It, it, it doesn't work in a binary way like that. As you're building your strategy, you're building yeah. your culture, of course. So yeah, they're absolutely interlocked. And I absolutely agree that if you get if you get your if you you can build your strategy, you can have the best strategy in the world, but if your culture's a mess, strategy's not working. And that's the experience. And and the the leaders need to understand the connectivity between strategy and culture. And so so I come across so few leaders that get that. Mm. In the research for Leadership Matters, you talk to um, not only members of the Institute, but also yeah. uh, uh, high-profile leaders yeah. uh, and looked at their experience. Who's yeah. some, someone that stood out for you? That... Uh, well, the one, the one that stood out was actually Alan Joyce from Qantas, right? Um, one, the, the one thing that really stood out was when you walk into their head office, the whole experience, the whole culture of the organisation is set up to reflect what the business is. What, what do I mean? You walk in, and when you go for a meeting, it's like you're checking into a flight. Right. You get a boarding pass, you get asked to go and sit in the lounge, and the lounge looks exactly like the Qantas lounge. 
and the the staff are wearing the corporate outfits just right. in, outfits the corporate uniforms yeah, yeah. just as they are at the airport right. so you are getting an immersive cultural experience and that sounds um, on the one hand it sounds a bit crass and twee and I don't think it is I think what, what that organization saying is we're an airline we take flying incredibly seriously and the person that's sitting on reception takes it just as seriously as the person designing the aeroplanes. And um, we learned something from that. So we did a, bit, a few changes at the Institute and, and um, we broke down a few walls and we wanted people to come in and see our business. And that was based on what Qantas did. And it was just a very nice experience. You checked in, you got your boarding pass, which was your confirmation of your meeting. You were asked to sit. The, the thing looked just like the lounge. There were magazines on there. So I think what what Alan was talking about to me was about the culture of the organisation and how it reflects the strategy of the business, which is exactly what we talked about. Mm. Yeah. And so immersive, uh, yeah. that kind of approach. So then with your uh, flight crew and you come to head office, it's yeah. like, oh, you look just like us. Yeah, We're all yeah, the yeah. same. We operate in the same exactly. way. We're yeah, following exactly. the same um, principles and the way yeah, we yeah, operate. Yeah. And, it's, and the values run through the core of the organisation and the activity runs through the core of the organisation. And, and I think it's um, it sounds so obvious, but so few people, so few, well, more and more organisations are doing it. But I think leaders need to sit back and work that stuff out. And um, I think it was, I don't know who wrote that book, Don't Sweat the Small Stuff. My view is do sweat the small stuff. If you're a leader, sweat the small stuff because the small stuff is what matters to the organization. Mm. It's what people see, it's, it's how you portray yourself as a business. Mm. And it's also the stuff that can become amplified. And, and can let an organisation down. So as a leader, I think you should be sweating the small stuff. Too many leaders are up there in ivory towers and, and are not getting down and dirty, mm. if you like, with the staff mm. and seeing what's actually going on. Mm. So yeah, no, I th I th that's what I really liked about mm. the, 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 the Qantas mm. side of things. Yeah. And I think that small stuff, it's like that definition of brand. What is brand? Yeah. It is everything. It is, it is yeah. every single thing that you do. And so often we identify brand with the, the logo and the color palette that we're using. Yeah. You know, it's not brand, it's every single thing that it's you do. It's the feel that you get. And it's, the, it's this inclusiveness that you get on, on, for, for an organization. And, and that comes from the leader. You know, the shadow of the leader is is alive and well. And if you're, you know, if you're saying that your organisation is a family, this is used all the time, isn't it? This organisation <laughs> Overused. is a family. Yep. And then the leader walks in and walks to her desk or his desk and doesn't talk to anybody. Well, I don't do that with my family. I walk, get up in the morning and I expect my kids to say good morning and I say yes. good morning. Yes. So yeah. don't let's let's stop using these cliches or use them and. And damn yeah. well live them. Yeah. You know. Yeah. No, I heard a good example of that. Um, a, a a bank that shall go unnamed, and the executive team had a separate lift yeah. and a separate floor yeah. in the office tower, so that they didn't have to you know mix with the workers yeah. on the on the way in. And it's like, how do you build a culture when you're yeah. going such an elitist view of how we how we operate? It was well, it was just a, just a, a, perhaps I give a, a nice example from my career defining moment. I had a career defining moment, so I left university, and I got a job with Cadbury's. Um, I worked at Cadbury's Chocolate. In fact, mm -hmm. for my um, my very first secondment within Cadbury's, I was on the graduate recruitment circle where you yes. go and did different jobs. I ended up in the HR department, so I was an HR manager um, for Cadbury Schweppes. And um, it was a great job, and uh, somebody went off on maternity leave, and at the age of 23, I was appointed to be the head of remuneration 
for Cadbury Schweppes. It was, it was brilliant, it, but it was just a it was a, it was a maternity parental leave secondment. But I thought I was the bee's knees. I was 23. I was just out of uni. I was. I'm deciding them. how everybody oh, in this organisation yeah, yeah. gets paid. Access to everybody's pay. Uh, you know, I, was doing pay, I did a, uh, a year of pay rises and all. That. I used to wear my, my Mickey Mouse silk tie because those were the days. Uh, I remember. So I thought I was king of the castle, and I got headhunted. And I got headhunted, and this this uh, headhunter called me and said, "Oh, you know, we've heard that you're the head of remuneration for Cadbury Schweppes." And it wasn't; it was Treble Bassett. But I think I'd, <laughs> think I'd, ex- I'd, I'd, I'd embellish my neither CV. Neither <laughs> a good story for the truth. <laughs> so, so I, I got headhunted, and I left. I left Cadbury Schweppes. I'd only been there for two and a half years, and I joined an organisation called the Liverpool. I will name. I'm naming names. Um, I, I joined an organisation called Liverpool Victoria Insurance. And um, they were based in Hoburn in London. They had a big office, Liverpool Victoria Insurance. It's Sounds inspiring. Yeah. Uh, it had been around since 1758 right. or something like that. And it was one of those dollar pound insurance companies where yes. you paid your pound every week. And um, on the first day in my job, I walked in off, off Hoburn, main Hoburn Street, and I walked into the lift and I got a tap on the shoulder as I was walking into the lift from a bloke behind me. And he, he looked at me and he said, what level are you? I said, oh, I don't know, it's my first day. And he said, oh, y- you look too young to be able to use this lift. And I said, oh, what are you talking about? <laughs> this is only, uh, this would have been 1995. And he said, oh, I said, oh, what are you talking about? He said, oh, this is a lift for directors only. Your lift, I don't know what level you are, but you're definitely not a director. Your lift is around the other side. It turned out that this building on the corner of um, Southampton Row in Hoburn had four entries, one on each side, and each was a different level. Yes. It had three canteens, and here's the strange thing. They had a tea lady who would walk around pushing a tea trolley with a tea urn on it. And she, um, I reported to the HR director, whose name I remember to this day, it was Richard Burton, after the actor. I can remember his yes. name now. If you're watching this, Richard, I remember you. You don't remember me. I'll tell you why in a minute. Um, Richard Burton was sitting there in a meeting with me and the tea lady came in and she served him tea and not me. Because tea was a benefit for directors. Right. right. And. I, on, on three weeks later, on a Friday, I was sitting in my office. I'd just had a meeting with someone who had come in to ask me how I wanted my office renovated. I was allowed to spend money to renovate my office. Pointless. And I, you couldn't the, get a cup of tea, but you could I, renovate an office. I was allowed to spend £100,000 renovating my office, but I wasn't allowed a cup of tea. Okay, I was sitting there three weeks later with the, the pallet swatches in front yes. of me. And I decided I was getting up and walking out. Yes. And I got up, I left everything on my desk and I walked out. I never spoke to them, I never resigned. Uh, I just walked out, I couldn't work in that culture and that environment. And very, very fortunately, um, about five weeks later, I started at Hewlett Packard. And the interesting thing about me starting at Hewlett Packard was I had to explain why I'd left this organization. Mm -hmm. And I went in and I was with the head of HR at HP and I I just said, look, I just need to be honest with you. This is this organization that I just worked for. And their jaws were on the desk. They said, is this, the places like this still exist? And they do. And they did, and they do. Yeah. <laughs> and and someone, I hope they've changed. Um, I hope Richard Burton changed them. Yeah. This is 20 odd years ago now, but th- those cultures exist and people don't understand the impact that that nonsense has. So that's so what, what, what questions did you ask the... I didn't ask any questions. No, 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 of the uh, Hewlett Packard head oh. of HR when you were about to join them, yeah. having just had a very poor culture experience. That's a, what fa- questions did you try to ask? That's go, a oh, fantastic, what's it like? That's a fantastic question. I think what I did in those three weeks, thinking back now, what I'd lost sight of uh, uh, was... Uh, what, what I'd been offered was more money. 
I left Cadbury Schweppes, they'd offered me more money. I think I seem to remember it's like two thousand pounds or something. But when you're twenty three, that was that's the world, you know. I, I was thinking of a car I could and buy. And it's all disposable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right. I, and I moved for money. And I think what I did in that time after leaving Liverpool, Victoria, I was unemployed um, for five or six weeks before I joined Hewlett Packard. I, I assessed my own personal values. Yes. What do I want? What, what is my purpose? I mean, this is what Simon Sinek talks about. And years later, he's captured the market in individual purpose. But we've all been talking about purpose and thinking about it. He's just captured the market and he's got the great book and the sound bites, and he's sure. great. But I was sitting there thinking, what kind of organization do I, what's my individual purpose? What, 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 what switches me on and what yes. switches me off? Yes. And hierarchy, formality, um, that stuff that I call leadership bullshit switches me off. I can't be doing with that. I can't be doing with status. I can't be doing with organizations that think you need to wear a shirt and tie. I can't be doing with these these things that don't matter in performance. Yes. And too many organizations get wrapped up in what I call the trappings and they don't realize that what it's actually about is how you deliver. Correct. So here I am. Um, all these years later, and at the, my board meeting on Friday last week, I had a board meeting of the Institute, we made the most monumental decision that's ever been, that's been made in the 80 years of the Institute of Managers and Leaders. On Friday last week, the board approved the move of our organisation to a four-day working week. Correct. So I'm about to announce to the staff that we're moving to a four-day working week. That is a cultural sign that is as powerful as those bloody four lifts in the Liverpool Victoria and the Tea Lady. What does a four-day week mean? We're going to be cutting everybody's contract to four days, but paying them for five days. Mm -hmm. We are making a cultural statement that our organisation is not about trappings and the nonsense of performance. It's about expecting people to deliver results and be productive at work. Mm. And how you do that is up to you, but just get on and do it because we've got a common purpose and a common vision. Mm. Have you followed the case study of Prudential and their four-day week? I'm meeting him at two o'clock this afternoon, Andrew Barnes. Great. Andrew Barnes. I'm having, I'm having coffee with him this afternoon Great. in Auckland. Great. So his book, the seminal book, The Four-Day Week, and that's what triggered me to start thinking about the nonsense, the way the working week and the way the working day and the way work is set up is absolute nonsense. I'll give you the, the classic example I've got, it makes my blood boil, is contracts of employment are just garbage. Totally. They're not worth the paper they're written on. Yeah. My, my contract, I think, says I work seven and a half hours a day and I take an yeah. hour for lunch and yeah. I don't even know what that means. And by the way, that's not just me, my whole organisation. Like, we're always on, we get up in the morning at three o'clock or five o'clock or whatever time, the contract is dead. What we need to focus on is productivity. And we need to go to people and say, when are you at your most productive? Well, you work that out. You work out your family life and your hobbies and your mental health. We'll help you as much as we can, but we're not expecting people to get in at nine o'clock and leave at five o'clock. It's dead. Mm -hmm. God, I'm on, a, I'm on a soapbox. <laughs> and, and it's a great soapbox to be in because yeah, I think the, uh, the more organizations we have in the world that are focused on productivity and output yeah. and the value they're creating and yeah. less about the ones that are observing time at their, their desk, it'll be better for our economies, it'll be better for our uh, mental health, it'll yeah. be better for our well-being of our, of our people. It's a, it's a great place to well, be. You know, so. Interestingly, at a board meeting on Friday, um, and we've got nine board directors, including a representative director, director from, from New Zealand, 
Um, good on the board of directors, right? Because of course the board is interested in the governance and, and the, they have the fiduciary responsibility of the organization. And what we can't do is, is, is trash the finances of the organization. Of the, the, the directors managed to look beyond that and say, actually, this isn't about trashing anything. This is about building up this organization. So the interesting thing we had to get over, and it didn't take us long to get over it was, this isn't about being nice to people. We all have, that's a byproduct. A byproduct is we all need to be nice and we need to be better managers and leaders. But actually this is about increasing productivity and performing better. And you can't perform if you're sitting at your desk, you're stressed, you're working really long hours, you're struggling with your mental health and you can't work in that environment. And more and more organizations are coming around to thinking that the time that you work is irrelevant. It's what you do in the time that you work. And that's what the four day week's about. And I'm finally, like I'm 50 now, and I was, I was 23 or 24 back with Liverpool Victoria. I'm finally at the polar opposite yes. of what that nonsense was. Yes. Yeah. Brilliant. But what I do think thing, initiatives like the four-day week require are evolutions and better skills of managers and leaders. I totally agree. Because the, uh, it used to be making sure your team arrived before nine and didn't leave till five was the, yeah, the, a core skill of being a manager. You know, were your people at your desk? You go on a time management, time yeah, management yeah. course, you are get the little book there? and the pen. Are you yeah. there? And now it's it's uh, yeah. we have to talk much more about strategy. Even if that is yeah. a, um, a just a component over the the overall strategy, it's the yeah. strategy for our team. What does value output like? What are the key things that we need to make sure we deliver? Whether we yeah. do it in one day or five days a week, yeah. who cares? But what are the things yeah. and what are the what where we focus? You what, see, what are the things see, that matter? So oh, you're totally right, Ryan. We're going to move to a four day week. It's happening, it starts on April the 4th, Monday, April the 4th or the 5th. So we've got a month and that month is intentionally put in there. And I said to the leadership team, this is now your issue. You are now, this, this isn't actually a cultural issue. This is a management and leadership issue because we have committed to the board that we will deliver the budget and we'll deliver the financial targets and they're very aggressive. We've got a 34% increase in revenue and all of that kind of stuff. So we've committed to the board, just to get your head around this, that we'll increase revenue by 34% at the same time as we're losing a day a week off everybody's time, okay? That almost sounds incomprehensible. How will we do that? Management and leadership. And I said to the leadership team, your work starts here. We are, we are now going to manage this organization and lead this organization in a completely different way. You're the team. I totally trust you. You're fantastic. But you have now got to work out how you're going to do it. So your work starts. Correct. And we're really, well, we're, we're a leadership institute, so you'd expect us to step up to the plate. <laughs> but, but, we're, we're, so. but the leadership team were looking there and saying, oh, right, okay. So all of a sudden, they're empowered. They've got scope. So what I've said to them, we've got five business units. Each business unit needs to go away and work out how they're going to approach this commitment, this, this, um, this, this commitment that the board has made to us to support this proposal. And then they're going to come back. So we've, we've taken benchmarks. We've done mental health benchmarks and happiness at work benchmarks. Those benchmarks have to improve through the trial. We're doing a six-month trial. But the leadership team need to work out how their teams are going to approach this honour that we've been given by the board. Mm. And it's going to be fascinating because this is about management and leadership. It is, in a big way. And the Prudential uh, provides a great case study. Yeah, they do. Because, you know, they were breaking ground really when they yeah. tried it, but 
what they managed to achieve yeah. with uh, improvements in productivity and financial performance around it. You know, yeah. Again, almost incomprehensible. You go, how can you have your people working less and yet they're doing, yeah. uh, so achieving so much more? Yeah, yeah. But I think we, we realize or are starting to understand better that um, high performance doesn't come from sitting at desk for eight hours in a row. Totally it right. might be about doing um, two hours of deep focus work, you know, first thing in the morning, because you get up at 3 a.m. and yeah. that's your zone. Or it might be about doing it at uh, nine o'clock at night because you're a night and that's what works for yeah. you and, and working in around Well, that. interestingly, I, present, I do a lot of presenting at conferences and, and sure. teams and that kind of stuff, and I talk about that. I talk about this idea that um, we have to find when our teams and our staff are at peak performance. And w- uh, the number of managers and leaders, I, I ask around the room, you know, do you know when your team, every single one of your team members is at peak performance? When? When's their, when's their zone? You mentioned that word zone. What, what's someone's zone? And everyone looks at you and says, oh, I don't know. It's like, well, if, if your job as a manager and leader is to get your team into peak performance and you don't know when they're in peak performance, you failed. You know, you're just not doing your job, quite frankly. Like, what? So, for example, if, you're call, if someone's calling a meeting with me at four o'clock in the afternoon, they must be mad. I'm <laughs> terrible at four o'clock in the afternoon. Well, you've yeah. already been up for 13 I've, hours. I've been up for 13 hours. Look, literally, I've been for a run. I've been up for 13 hours. So I am not very good. I'm not good in the afternoon. But get me in the morning. I'm great. So... Uh, is, so when they're trying to get one past you, they yeah. do it at four o'clock? <laughs> but it's beholden on me to, to understand where my team are on that peak performance zoning, you know. And so many managers and leaders call a team meeting at nine o'clock in the morning. Well, yeah. what happens if, you know, um, th- this parent here has been up all night with a kid and just dropped them at daycare and they've got school and... Uh, well, but perhaps you might sit down with your team and say, look, let's work out as a team when the, pe- the mode of people, you're not gonna get everybody, but you find that happy medium. Mm. And the number of managers that sit there and say, oh no, I've not thought of that. That's your job, mate. That's your job. Your job yeah. is to understand what motivates your team. It's not to stand on stage and do all this rah-rah stuff. Get down in the weeds, sweat the small stuff. Yes. Bizarre. Yeah, and so it. Uh, tell us, in Leading Well, you covered seven attributes yeah. of, of leaders. Um, but I think one of the insights from the book is that it's not about the seven attributes individually. It's yeah. about how they, the interdependency yeah. and how they, yeah. how they connect. Yeah. Can you just give us some insight into how you viewed that? Yeah, sure. So um, we believe the seven attributes and um, they're absolutely all interconnected. In actual fact, it was quite hard. It was, it was quite hard um, to separate them into chapters. But the beauty is that they all cross-reference. And I'll give you the very best example, I think. And it's the book. It's the part of the book that is incredibly kind of controversial. I talk about it all the time. We and need some controversy. <laughs> <in this podcast. laughs> we we do far too much agreeing. <laughs> there is, so here's the controversy. Okay, it's this idea of authenticity, authentic leadership. And the chapter was written by an absolutely fabulous leader and friend of the Institute, Alison Kehoe, and she wrote the chapter on authenticity. Okay, and then there is a, a, a sister chapter, if you like, on self-awareness. And here is the Institute's view, right? Authenticity is absolute nonsense. It's the biggest load of pop psychology bullshit. I apologize, you have to put explicit on the podcast now. It's the biggest load of pop psychology bullshit that's ever been around, okay? I'll explain why I think authenticity is absolute nonsense. And it's this idea of a baby holding an apple and saying, oh, I'm, I'm all authentic, be an authentic leader. It's nonsense. And the reason it's nonsense is this. John Burkow, who was the ex-speaker of the House of Commons, um, who's just stepped down, um, he was interviewed in the Guardian newspaper and there was a fantastic picture of him sitting in one of his chairs in the House of Commons and it said, 
Um, yes, I'm aggressive. Yes, um, I can be a bit of a bully, but at least I'm authentic. And I read that and I thought, okay, you're, auth you're aggressive and you're a bully and you think that's okay just because you're being yourself? Change, mate. Change yourself. Find don't, a bit away. Don't accept that. So the problem I find with authenticity is it's a cul-de-sac. You go down it and you end up in a place where you can say, yeah, I'm a horrible misogynist, but at least I'm authentic. Mm. Well, no, 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 I'm sorry. But if you think you're a horrible, so what do we say in the book? Authenticity is an absolutely honest, dead true construct, concept that you need to have as a, as a manager. You need to be authentic, but you have to be self-aware. Yes. You can't just be authentic. It's not good enough to say, I'm a bit of a dickhead, yeah. but at least I'm being authentic. Because yeah. authentically bad is still bad. Yeah, because that's exactly, that's, I, I say that in my presentations. If you're, you can be authentically bad, Donald Trump, <laughs> the most authentic leader in the world at the moment, yes. I would argue he's got zero self-awareness. Okay, so authenticity and self-awareness go hand in hand. What does self-awareness mean? It means you're on a journey of changing, and that's true authenticity, where you recognise that you are flawed, and you recognise your management traits that don't work, and you bloody well change them. Mm. So what we say to organisations, and I'm sure you say this to your clients, is implement 360-degree feedback. Get a 360-degree feedback tool in your organisation that's not threatening, that's safe, where you can learn about yourself and your teams can learn about themselves and then implement change processes. And that's the beauty of the book. You can take something in isolation and say, well, I'm all authentic. It's nonsense. It has to be authenticity with self-awareness. Yeah, yeah. So don't read the book and go, I tick the box on a couple of those things, so I'll just, I'll just focus on those, I'll Abs be good. Absolutely. The, the well-rounded leader looks at all of them and goes, how do I, how do I adopt, yeah. improve, adapt each of these? Uh, and then, and then the we, we have people run, and you must get this all the time, saying, oh, but it's, but it's really hard. <laughs> you know, it is hard, you're a leader. Like, you're leading a team of people, yeah. they spend eight hours, not even eight, eight hours a day, they spend 10 hours a day, probably six days a week, under your charge, in your care. It's hard work. Like, so don't mm. come, come around and say you thought leadership was gonna be easy. Well, you're silly. It's not yeah. easy. Yeah. It's hard work and, yeah. and you have to put the work in. So it, it, we've got the seven skills and seven attributes. That's 14 things, at least, by the way, at least. Sure, that a leader the, the, needs. those are the ones you selected. Those are the ones that we selected. was an exhaustive list. So, but, but you've got to start somewhere. Yeah. So, you know, start with 360 degree feedback. Start, I, I, I woke up this morning, I'm doing 360 degree feedback for a couple of my team at the moment, and I do it myself. So at the Institute, we do open feedback. Yes. We, we, we're a leadership institute, we lead by example. So we do open feedback. Everyone knows the feedback they get. And here's an interesting thing. I think, or I thought, that I'm the most strategic leader in the world. I've set strategy, you know, I've rebranded the Institute. I've, I've, I've done a merger with NZIM. I think I'm king shit when it comes to strategy. My 360 degree feedback said that I wasn't a strategic leader. Hmm? And I was, well, of course I fired those people. Of course, of course, <laughs> immediately. <laughs> Get rid of them. No, I, well, I didn't, that was a joke, that was a joke. Um, and what, what the but feedback- But they are on performance measurement. <laughs> the, the feedback I got was that the, the remem there are a, there's a whole swathe of my organisation that doesn't understand the strategy. That is an absolute failing on my part. Correct. Total failing on my part. What, so we've now implemented change where every time someone both interviews first then joins, they get a mini strategy, strategy pitch so that they know what they're coming into and everybody gets a CEO strategy hour when they join and three times a year 
I go back through the strategy of the organization. I wasn't doing that before. I was off thinking I know all about strategy and I'm in front of the board talking strategy. But actually the people implementing the bloody strategy didn't know what it was. Correct. So that yep. came through 360 degree feedback. See it all the time and have yeah. uh, done the same myself where uh, we have board meetings and we talk about what's going to, to happen yeah. and got the same feedback from our team of going, hey, it's great that you go and have these board meetings, but we don't know what the strategy Correct. is. And suddenly you're coming down going, can you execute this? Can you make this happen? And no one has context yeah. or understanding And you're direction. walking around thinking, I'm all strategic. Oh, I'm all yeah, strategic. Brilliant. Well, you're not strategic if your people don't think you are, quite yeah. frankly. Because again, you're... Being strategic might be great, but you also have to be a great communicator. That's right. Because if you're not doing the communication piece, then again, it doesn't matter how good your strategy yeah, yeah. is. People Which again comes back to this. You have to think about this. Then you've, you, as a leader, oh, you've got balls hard, in the air. Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. You're juggling. And, and, and it should be hard. If it it's easy, be. then everyone yeah. would do it. And everyone's not doing it. There's mm. too many people not yeah. doing it very well. We talk a lot with clients about collaboration. You know, it's another one of those great words. It's your authentic leadership and collaboration. We've all got to be collaborating. And we're going... After a session when you're collaborated, you should feel almost a little bit uneasy and very oh. challenged. Because totally. collaboration's not sitting around and all agreeing. Collaboration's stress testing things and challenging. asking difficult questions yeah. and challenging. Yeah. And you know, of course you need uh, some psychological safety in, in your organization to be able to do that yeah. uh, as a fundamental principle. But yeah. you know, collaboration should be hard work. It's not, it's not about making it easy. We violently agree. We do, we do <laughs> violently, violently. I like it. So David, are you uh, an international man of mystery? I thought maybe secret agent or something <laughs> in your, uh, you know, there seem to be a few aliases, a few different it. names. Floating around. <laughs> oh, uh, right. So you well, know my name. Okay. On? So um, I suppose my claim to fame, if I have any, and I have very few, I only have one, is that I have a surname that I can't pronounce, and there is a very reason, a very good reason for that. So my my name is David Pich, and it's that guttural German sound. Right. And the reason I have a surname I can't pronounce, and it, the the look of aliases, is that on the night before I got married to my German wife, she suggested spinning a coin to see who got whose surname the next day at our wedding. Love it. And we spun a coin and she won. Um, I picked tails, she picked heads, it was heads, and the next day at two o'clock in the afternoon, I took her surname. So I changed my name from Tipler, I was David Tipler, and I walked out of the registry office as David Pich. So I now have a German surname that I can't pronounce. Right, and I think this is just coincidentally <laughs> a fantastic lead into your t-shirt that you're wearing. Yeah. Hash Feminist, um, and look, on a, on a serious note, yep. we've got International Women's Day tomorrow. Yeah. Um, give us some insight into what yeah, uh, sure. Institute of Management so, is doing. So International Women's Day is, is the 8th of March, and um, that falls on a Sunday this year, so the corporate International Women's Day is, is on, uh, is on uh, the 6th of March, which is tomorrow. And uh, the Institute of Managers and Leaders Australia New Zealand has a long history of supporting International Women's Day, and it's really a, a flagship and core part of what we believe in. We believe in equality at work, uh, gender equality, and all, all forms of equality and inclusion. But of course, International Women's Day is around gender equality. And um, so we've been running International Women, Women's Day events uh, for about 22 years. And tomorrow, and the reason I'm in Auckland, other than, of course, to record this podcast, Ryan, the reason I'm in Auckland is we launched, this is our inaugural um, New Zealand International Women's Day event. Yes. And I think the cause of gender equality is becoming front and centre of management and leadership, and as it should be, by the way. And um, I do think New Zealand has a lot to hold its head high with around that topic. The best example I've got, other than, of course, your female prime minister, but the, the best example I've got is the gender pay gap. 
The gender pay gap, and, and let's, let, let's be very clear, any gender pay gap is a disgrace. And um, there is absolutely no reason why women doing a similar job to a man should be paid any less than a man. If so, that is an absolute baseline and cause. So when I say there's cause for celebration, I'm not, I'm not dancing around the streets here. Everything okay. is solved. But 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 here it is. In 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 New Zealand, on average, the gender pay gap is about nine point seven percent. That is fantastic. It's terrible, but it's fantastic. What it means is there's progress being made. Um, let us speed that progress up. When you compare that to Australia, seventeen point nine percent and declining. When really? you compare that to the UK, 16.3%. In actual fact, there was a study released yesterday in the UK. And would you believe yesterday, so uh, Wednesday the 5th or 4th of uh, March was a very significant day. It was called Women's Pay Day. Okay, so in the UK it was called Women's Pay Day. What that meant was that from January the 1st to yesterday, due to the gender pay gap, women have essentially worked for nothing. Wow. 63 days of working for nothing just to just because of the gender pay gap, that is an absolute disgrace. The topic that we're talking about at our um, International Women's Day event in Auckland tomorrow morning is each for equal. And um, I really like that topic because what that's saying is that we each have a role to play. Uh, we each have a role to play. And it is a, men, is a man's issue as much as it is a woman's issue. We each have a role to play in getting this right and improving things. And that's why I'm wearing a feminist T-shirt. I stand out and proud as a feminist. We have to equalise the, the gender relations and gender issues at work. And the sad fact is that the vast majority, unfortunately, of leaders, and I'm one myself, are men. And unless we do something and we take a stand, this will never improve. And it absolutely needs to improve. It is disgraceful. It is. And I think, like you say, there is progress progress happening, there but is. it's not happening fast enough. It's glacial, actually. It's glacial. And mm. th th there is no reason at all why women doing the same job as men should be paid 9.3% less. Yeah. Yeah. Bizarre. And we're seeing uh, good progress in things like professional sport. You know, we now see mm. the international tennis federations having exactly the same prize money for, for men and women. And, uh, you know, the sooner that moves through all, our, all of our organisations and all yeah. of our nations, the the better. I totally agree. If you could be anyone for a day, David, who would you be? <laughs> I would pick anybody who could run a sub three hour marathon <laughs> on the day of a marathon. Right. Okay, so I've been trying to run a sub three hour marathon. So in the year 2000, I ran my first marathon. I ran the Sydney Olympic Blue Line Marathon, which was the warm up event for the Sydney Olympics. Um, I have to say to my great shame that I was in a nightclub until three o'clock in the morning. And I did leave the nightclub, go home and put my marathon gear on, um, which hadn't been washed from the previous run <laughs> that I'd done. And um, to my great shame, I finished that marathon in four hours and 43 minutes. And um, the story of that marathon is that as I entered Homebush, the Olympic Stadium, um, you come through the little undercover bit with the stadium above you. And I stopped and I was, I was in tears. I was, it was a dreadful, it was the worst day, <laughs> worst athletics or sports yes. day of my life. I was stretching all my legs out and a lady ran past me pushing a double stroller <laughs> and she put her hand on my back and she said, come on, mate, you can do it. And I did do it but I didn't catch her down the back straight. Yeah. She, she crossed the line in mm. front of me and I resolved that day, the year 2000, I resolved to run a marathon a year for the rest of my life. So I'm now 
training for the uh, Canberra Marathon in three weeks' time. It would be my 33rd marathon. I've done a few marathons yes. only 20 years ago. Um, Are you banking a few? I've banked You're a few. few. <laughs> I've banked a few. But I have never run a sub-three-hour marathon. So who would mm. I be? I would be anybody that can run a sub-three-hour marathon on the day of a mm. marathon. You could go one better. I mean, the, the two-hour marathon record's <laughs> just recently been, uh, been it broken. It was, yes. You know, you yeah, can keep choking. Yeah, I was, maybe, I was uh, glued to that. Yeah. But I would take Phenomenal. three hours. Three hours, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, look, David, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, I'd like to acknowledge you for the work that you're doing around leadership and management. Uh, yes, we are converts ourselves. <laughs> we think they're of very course. critical, but but what you're doing is, is very important. Um, the work you're doing to promote uh, women in business and yeah. as leaders and equal pay, I think is, is brilliant. Thank you for bringing the insights you've brought through your, through your books. Because uh, often we go, oh, we kind of think this is the case, but actually well-researched and well-documented uh, insights are always uh, brilliant. So thank you for, for doing that. Um, if people want to connect with you, David, where, where can we find you online? Yeah. Uh, very easy, managersandleaders.co.nz. Managersandleaders.co.nz. Any of our events, all of our books are on there. Um, or find me on LinkedIn, David Pick, the CEO with the name he can't pronounce. Brilliant. Thanks for joining us, David. Cheers. Awesome. Thanks, Thanks so much. That was great.